0: Hannah Knowles is the senior commissioning editor at Canongate Books, and we're at their offices in Notting Hill. Welcome to the Bibliophile.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: What's the difference between an editor and a commissioning editor?
1: Uh, I think partly it can be about where you work, and everybody has everybody uses titles in a different way, and that can be very confusing for people. Because editor can mean any number of things. Okay. An editor can be a commissioning editor. It could be a project editor. It could be somebody who... It could be a copy editor. So an editor is... It sort of covers a lot of evils.
0: So what's a commissioning editor? Then? So a
1: commissioning editor is somebody who buys books to publish on a list. So we have a list that we curate. So they, we tend to have a particular style or taste... And we buy books on submissions from agents. Sometimes we approach people directly if you want to do books with them. And we buy books to publish on, on the company's list. So I suppose you could say it's a, a sort of a, a, a shaping role in terms of what the company's output is.
0: So you don't get involved in the actual... Copy itself. You just, you have to read these books to determine mm-hmm. if you're gonna buy them or mm-hmm. the rights to them, right? So yeah. you do a lot of reading, I assume.
1: A lot of reading. It feels like every waking moment is spent <laughs> reading, um, which is a good thing, obviously. Yeah. We do, actually at Canongate, we, because we're an indie and, well, not necessarily because of that, but we are smaller than the corporates, so we do tend to do structural edits ourselves. So we will be the, all the commissioners will be the first people to. Give editorial feedback to writers. So, we do work closely with the writers ourselves. Okay. Um, in other jobs I've done, you don't always do that. You don't always, you will hand over to a project editor who will do that work for you. A what? A project editor or a desk editor, which is somebody who is more hands on with the text. Yeah, but dangerous. here, there aren't, you know, we're a smaller team yeah. and we do both of those jobs. Okay. Um, so we buy them in, and we do the first edit of the book.
0: So I've been using, this past week, I've been using Jeffrey Faber as my, uh, well, sort of my song sheet.
1: When was that published?
0: This was published in 1934. He, ne- he never did an autobiography or a memoir. Mm. These are uh, talks that he gave. There's four of them, four or five of them. And this one's from our publisher's any use. And he talks about the fact that uh, you get to a point where you say, the publisher says, but you perform an essential role here. This is what publishers used to do. is to use your judgment and take a risk. You're risking the company's money here. So the publisher must have a huge amount of faith in you if they're going to put their money up, based on what you say?
1: <laughs> uh, yes, in theory, yes, <laughs> they do. Well, um, but buddy. I guess that's based on, you know, it's based on experience. And what tends to happen is that, you know, when you're, whether you're an assistant editor, when you're, when you're more junior, as you're coming through and you're doing the work on books that other people have commissioned you start to get an idea for what you might like to commission so you start doing one or two bits earlier on so it's that thing of getting that experience earlier on and then you're gradually building it so by the time that you go for a commissioning editor job you have the experience people can look and say oh well she's already he or she has already done xyz and so you have a track record so yeah it has to be based on a, a degree of experience and
0: so, uh, obviously, the one determinant, or a, a hugely important one, is how many books did you, the books that you pick sell? Also, yeah. obviously, how good the text is.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's not necessarily a correlation in how good the text is and how well it sells <laughs> <Of course. laughs> at all. And I Unfortunately, yeah. When I think about the books that I've done, they've been the highest sellers. Uh, that's probably yeah <laughs> not true. Though. And generally, the by far, the most frivolous ones... Um, <laughs> With the least text, I would say.
0: You're talking about um, the Trump
1: book? <laughs> I wasn't actually thinking about the Trump book. That's a work of genius, of course. Um, but that's an example. I mean, humor books that I've done have probably been some of the best selling ones yeah. that I've done. Um, mm. But so yeah, a... I suppose sometimes people do. It depends what kind of publishing you work in. If you work in a corporate publishing house and you're doing a job where you have a target, say, you might have a financial target of however many well, it was 1 million, 2 million, 3 million. Um, if you have a financial target then yes so you will be expected to be bringing in a certain amount of money but it depends who you work for and what sort of publishing you're doing if you publish literary fiction obviously there will be the hope that you would publish books that sell well we all want to publish books that sell well you have to stay in business you do but you also want to publish books that win awards and that get great reviews, and that people will continue to read. So they might not sell a huge amount in their first year, yeah. but that will go on and over twenty years might actually end up selling more than something that was a bestseller in its first year and didn't sell after that. Mm-hmm. So you want a book with legs. That's exactly. Yeah.
0: Obviously, that's good. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily have to win prizes, although that helps. Exactly. But yeah. it, but if it's part of your backlist and it's yes, exactly.
1: Yeah. And some companies focus on the backlist more than others it's just about wh- whoever you work for and what their model is
0: so what's the model here
1: i think i mean cangate has a phenomenal backlist um, and that was one of the things that appealed to me when i joined i wrote a really embarrassing letter when i joined basically saying it was the only company that i wanted to work at i'd moved around a lot just to clarify i had actually worked i've worked at quite a lot of companies in the uk but it was basically the one place i wanted to work at because you know when you look at their backlist
0: it's got a very cool yeah. vibe.
1: Yeah. And it's international. It's got so many different voices from yeah. history makers to just weird, weird, <laughs> bizarre writers. Yeah. It really covers a whole gamut, but they all have a very similar sensibility. So, yeah, I mean, we have a fantastic backlist, but we also we've had great bestsellers in mm. the last couple of years. Obama, you yeah, had, right? Indeed, he's sitting on the shelf over there. Yeah, we have. And there's uh, a book on toxic masculinity by uh, a writer and comedian called Robert Webb called How Not to Be a Boy, which did great guns yeah. last year. There you go, he's right there as well, staring at us down from the shelf. So, yes, yeah, and also we sell well internationally. And I think Canongate, particularly, is really known for selling rights extremely well. And mm. that's because, I guess we do books that, that do that, that do speak beyond the UK market. And again, that's not about one thing being better than another. Some companies, their focus is having high sales in the UK, less so about selling books abroad. But for us, selling well internationally has always been a big thing.
0: So how does that influence your decision-making then?
1: I think it took me a while when I, when I joined Gates to sort of get my head around... It, because it's a very different, I'd come from two corporates, back-to-back, back, um, and actually sort of shedding all of that, uh, all the expectations and all the uh, restrictions, uh, I suppose, of you do a particular sort of thing and then joining Canongate, here we do everything. Mm. If you look at our shelves, we do fiction, non-fiction, poetry, graphic novels... Anything Literally that's good. Everything. Anything yeah. that's good and anything that speaks to the aesthetic that we have. And that was actually quite overwhelming when I joined. Because in mm. theory, that is a commissioner's dream. <laughs> you want to have that. You want to be it's talking a carte about doing launch, anything. Right? Exactly. anything that works, that yeah. you love, you can yeah. go for. The theory of that is fantastic. But the reality yeah. is, yeah. you sort of freeze. <laughs> if you can do anything, <laughs> then well, what do you do? So it took a while to just sort of you know get the feel of it. Get the feel of what... Where, where what I could do fitted in. But I mm. think it's, you know, it's the list has always been extremely inclusive here at Canongate. That fits in with my own beliefs of what a list should be. And, and I suppose actually because I've worked in illustrated books for quite a long time and illustrated publishers tend to also focus on international publishing as well because you need to sell co-editions to make the expense of Pretty. printing internationally mm. work. So that, you know there is a affinity there as well.
0: So let's get back to Jeffrey. He uh, talks about the point where you arrive at perhaps this is worth publishing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So right when you get to that point, you start to ask yourself about the content of the manuscript. So I'm going to run through a number of the questions that he might ask or a publisher or a commissioning editor might ask of that manuscript. And the first one is, is it too long or too short? So what's the right length of a book?
1: <laughs> I don't think... that I, That's never something I've really paid any consideration <laughs> to at all. And I don't Good. think Canongate too. You can see... Yeah, thick and thin, I mean, yeah. we really do. We do books that are basically doorstops and, yeah. and the shortest of... Um, novellas. So, yeah, I think that's not something I would particularly think about.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and again, it fits in with your philosophy of, you know, anything good goes. Yeah. Uh, Are its proportions what they should be? I'm not exactly sure what he means by that.
1: No, nor am I. Unless he's meaning, if if books were coming to him fully formed, but you wouldn't imagine that would be the case, so... Okay, let's skip Not that. Not sure. One.
0: <laughs> Is this passage or that redundant? Mm. That's getting down yeah. to the nitty gritty, right?
1: Yeah, I think I think for for me, I can't speak for every commissioner, but I'd I imagine for most of us, it's more about whether the manuscript as a whole works. If there are lots of passages where things aren't working or it could be removed, then there's a problem. But if over the, as a whole, the manuscript's great and it's you're engaged with it and you are excited by it, you're not going to be that bothered by one or two redundant passages. That's if you've got job, a whole
0: bunch of redundancy, then obviously you're not going to go with it.
1: Yeah. Your, your attention will have wandered by then.
0: I, I often ask this question, but it's a good one. Uh, how long does it take for you to determine that a book is good or no good?
1: Yeah, that's... Yeah, I've, I've been asked that quite a lot. And I generally... I would say, and I think quite a lot of commissioners say, we try to we read the first 50 pages. But that's, it's easy to say that. In the first 50 pages, you can determine if somebody's a good writer. Mm-hmm. Good style. A good yeah. style. Mm-hmm. And whether what's happening is intrigued you enough to read on. But the reality is, if something is well written, 50 pages isn't enough. You have to read on. And generally, actually, you have to read the end. Mm. So it tends to be the things, either that or, you know, while I say we we can all commission whatever we want at Canongate, we do all have our particular areas. So I, for example, will never publish a serious history book. And I'm not going to do a book on, I don't know, popular science, because it's just not my territory at all. So if something comes in that's that, I will know within the first paragraph. I'll know from the agent's pitch, and then I will say, actually send it through to my colleague who then complains because I'm just dumping work on them? But you get the idea. So if it's not to my taste, or if it's if it's better for somebody else, or if it's better for another publisher, you will actually
0: take the trouble to tell oh, God, the writer. Oh, always, yeah. You, you might want to consider this. Yeah, always. And
1: even with agents, you know, if they've if they've tried and they sort of feel like they're banging their head against a brick wall, often people move around a lot in publishing, mm-hmm. so they might not know that certain a certain editor has just moved and gone to a different publisher and actually the book could work with that editor in that publisher. Right. So, yeah, and I, you know, I think generally we want, we're on the author's side. We yeah. want books, yeah. to, we want books that we want, we can buy. Mm-hmm. We don't start reading a submission thinking, I want to turn this down. Mm. So... You want to be excited. Yeah. And yeah. you want, you know, I, I've i lost out on books and options um, and, you know, been absolutely heartbroken, but I'm thrilled that the book is out there because it's, so, you know, it's gotta be I? about more than the ego, yeah. <laughs> Ultimately.
0: So tell me about the auctions.
1: About ones that I've lost out on, or
0: just generally, what are they and how do they work?
1: Um, I, I've not. I don't tend to get into that many of them. Uh, I suppose because I, I don't tend to go for the more commercial books. That's not to say it's always commercial books that get into auctions. But auctions are when an agent has gone out with a submission, and lots of editors want to buy it. So the agent then has to set ground rules about offers. You have a date for your first offers to be in. And then there can be there can be lots of different ways of doing it. It yeah. might be they say okay all offers over a certain amount can proceed to the next round or they could say the ones that the author feels the best rapport with they all move to the next round. So yeah, there're lots of different ways of doing it, but essentially it means lots of people are interested in one book. They all want to buy it and it's yeah. a bit of a fight.
0: And of course that that's what the author wants, if their if their goal is to make as much money as they can off it,
1: yes, yes. I always think it must be a very hard position to be in, particularly as a first time author to be in an auction. I think it must be really, really hard to make that choice because you've mm-hmm. no idea, and that could be you know that could be the rest, of the next however many years of your life. Um, you've committed to that relationship. You haven't lived together. No, exactly. Yeah. You're not lived together. You're not spending time together, and. It is a gamble, so I don't envy them that at all.
0: Okay, um, is this passage obscure? <laughs>
1: uh, I suppose from speaking with a CallanGate hat on, the more obscure the better. We we do obscure very well. Um, there's a there's a book. I'm not going to try and pronounce the author's name because I'll get it wrong. Um, ah. But a book called Cold Skin. Cold Skin. Yeah. Okay. It's. Uh, so, sort of surreal, speculative fiction, and there's, it's just bizarre. It's, it's utterly bizarre and involves a, a lizard like creature, shall we say? That this man who's in a lighthouse, there's no other people around apart from one other man who ends up in this place, this deserted, godforsaken place, and he ends up dressing up this lizard as a woman. To have sex with it because there's no women around. The whole thing is just—I mean—you can't get more obscure than that, really. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I would say that doesn't put us off <laughs> particularly. Also, I don't know what he means by obscure. I mean,
0: well, I suppose difficult for the reader to understand or relate to, or uh, that's yeah. not just my guess, but. We I don't know if I can relate to cross-dressing no. lizards, no, but no, uh, no,
1: and no, but, but me neither.
0: You know, again, if it, <laughs> if it works on you know to start with and keeps you reading,
1: it does, it does indeed. <laughs> uh,
0: and again, I guess the same holds for, <laughs> for is this passage needless, needlessly offensive, in kind of thing. The more offensive, the better.
1: No, no, not these no, days. Yeah, well, no, I think it's not. I think words have to, whatever context they're in, um, words have to serve a purpose, whether that be humour. And if you're being offensive for the purposes of humour, you know, arguably the books are done with this writer, Rob Sears, there's a beautiful poetry, of Donald Trump, and there's Vladimir Putin, Life Coach. Arguably, if you read some of those, you could say that they're offensive.
0: You also say both of these characters are offensive. Oh,
1: completely. Um, but if if there is a purpose to that offence, is it to try and shock people out of a uh, ambivalence? Is it to to provoke people to think about something in a different way? Then fine. But if it's just without. purpose which he seems to be saying then then yeah there's what's the point of it why are you doing it are you doing it just to try and get a response in which case that's lazy really
0: okay this is an interesting one is this passage libelous
1: (laughs) sadly sadly that's a bit of a clincher really unfortunately yeah i mean libel laws have got stricter and stricter copyright laws have got equally stringent. Um, Yeah, we have to listen to the lawyers,
0: unfortunately. So what? You you basically pick out the passages and send them over to the lawyer?
1: We, as a commissioner, you make an assessment. When you get a book in, Um, you make an assessment. Is there anything in here that could potentially cause legal problems? For the author, or for you, but Mm. um, predominantly for the author. And then it goes for a legal read. So it goes off to your... You might have an in-house lawyer who does those reads, or generally you'll have, there'll be a, a lawyer who you hire specifically for those purposes, and they, you will generally flag the things that you particularly are concerned by, but they will usually read the whole thing and give you an assessment of the risk. And as a publisher, you can decide where it's low risk, is it worth us actually saying, you know what, let's just go for it.
0: If it's because, great.
1: Yeah. But, yeah, unfortunately, that is something we do have to... How often does that come up? On memoirs, all the time, really. Most memoirs, I think we generally just do it as default. Hmm. Um, Increasingly, I think, parody is quite hard. Human parody.
0: That's kind of... If it is parody, you don't have to worry, right?
1: (sighs) Well, in theory, in theory, the answer is yes. But, I mean, if you look at books like The Trump or Putin... Well, Putin's you know, going to kill you, yeah. and Trump's definitely going to sue you, <laughs> exactly. regardless. Exactly, but they're you know they're parody. But if they wanted to, yeah, of course they could. I think they wouldn't have a case. But just because something actually you know in court wouldn't necessarily they wouldn't necessarily win, it doesn't mean people won't bring a case against you, and that in itself is a headache and an expense. So, and yeah, it,
0: yeah, obviously cuts into profits.
1: Yeah, exactly. But we're still alive touch wood so far
0: and we are touching wood
1: no novichok we are literally touching wood we are
0: in the boardroom of canongate london office yeah looking at beautiful what are those salmon and purple coloured box (laughs) gloves on the wallpaper
1: maybe coral maybe corally coloured coral yeah that's better Yeah.
0: yeah okay is the author's Angle of approach, awkward or irritating?
1: Uh, that will probably partly come down to personal taste, probably.
0: And that's what you were hired for?
1: Yeah. We have a process here, so if I love something, or any of the commissioners love a manuscript, we then discuss it in an editorial meeting, so with the entire editorial team, so with the managing editors, and with the publishing director and with our okay. editorial assistants.
0: Let's just do a very quick sketch of the managing editor. What do yes. they
1: do? So they're the people that keep us, well, they keep everything on track, and they make sure the books actually happen. So they they make sure there's a team, there's a copy editor, there's a proofreader, there's a typesetter, everybody working on the book. They arrange those teams, and they make sure the schedules, they set up schedules for books, they make sure those are stuck to As closely as possible, and they basically make sure the books happen. They collate proofs.
0: But so they come in after you've said yes? Yeah. Okay.
1: But for example, we have these editorial meetings, and they are there, and if they hate something that I'm bringing, they are a voice in that room where they can say, This is awful, why have you brought this?
0: (laughs) For example.
1: (laughs) So, you know, so if I've brought a book into that meeting and I love it and everybody else hates it, it's very unlikely that it will then go through to our acquisitions meeting, which is where I'd pitch it to the rest of the company, so the heads of sales and marketing and publicity. And
0: you pitch the fact that you want to acquire it. Yes. Okay, but so you need broad approval before you pull the trigger on, on it. Yeah. Exactly. Okay,
1: but we have that editorial meeting first.
0: And who else was in that meeting? You said
1: sorry, in the editorial or the acquisitions?
0: Uh, uh, editorial, you named a couple Everybody of... Everybody
1: who works in editorial. so the commissioning editors, there's our publishing director, okay. who over- but he's also one of the commissioning editors, so I, I, I use the term loosely. It's very confusing because there are lots of titles. We have a publishing director. Typically, what does the publishing director do? Heading up the department, overseeing the strategy for the editorial department.
0: So that person can overrule your decisions. Yeah, of
1: course. I see. Yeah.
0: That's that's all I do is overrule or
1: <laughs> and support <laughs> <Okay>. and encourage. <laughs> okay. Um, and there's an editorial director here who commissions as well. And
0: what does that editorial director do?
1: Well, he manages. I don't manage anybody, for example. So I I don't oh, have to.
0: Okay. He, I think yeah. it, I
1: think it means he's got better people skills than I do. He doesn't have to. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, he's um, yeah. So he I has see. more of a strategic role. So
0: he um, has to deal with all the office politics.
1: <laughs> or cause them? I don't know. No, that's a joke. That's a joke, Simon. If you're listening, um, that's a joke. <laughs> okay. Uh, so yes. So there's four of us who commission really. Um, Publishing director, editorial director, myself, and we've got a commissioning editor up in Edinburgh as well.
0: Can you just, again, clarify the difference between an editorial director and a publishing director?
1: Again, it depends where you work. So in some companies, there is very little difference. In some companies, a publishing director can effectively be an editorial director, or effectively it could be a commissioning editor. Um, Sometimes it can be to do with whether they sit on the board of directors, and the word director means that officially. Um, so it's a bit of a difficult one I'm afraid to okay. clarify. It can mean different things. Um, here essentially it's about seniority. I see. Nice. So it's, really it's publishing director,
0: editorial director, commissioning yeah. editor, copy yeah. editor.
1: Well we don't, we have managing editors rather than copy editors. So okay. we've got two managing editors who are brilliant and keep us in control and keep us in check and make sure that the books are all immaculate before they get printed.
0: What's that mean immaculate?
1: Well, Perfect, nothing, nothing wrong with them. Absolutely no errors. No typos. No typos, nothing that we could get sued for. And of course our editorial assistants as well.
0: So did we, did we cover awkward uh, and well, irritating? essentially, you said it's just taste, right? It is, and if, yeah. if
1: everybody, if half a room finds something irritating and awkward, but the other half love it and think it's great, for us that's probably a good sign.
0: Yeah, and you're going to go for it. Yeah. Is the style too bold or too florid? (laughs)
1: Uh, I think there's nothing wrong with being bold. For me, florid is not a good thing. Other people like florid. It's a taste thing.
0: Has he or she uh, got her facts right?
1: Hmm. Um, Probably more problematic if it is a non-fiction book and... You know, if, say if it's a scientific book, it's a bit worrying if the research isn't up to scratch. Mm-hmm.
0: But you're not going to know that when you read it to start with.
1: Generally, I suppose we try and work in areas that we roughly know things about. Okay. So, you know, I work in popular, try culture, to yeah. do popular culture, so hopefully I will know if somebody's got their facts wrong about a particular musician or anything sure. like that.
0: Okay. Is the ending weak?
1: Yeah, that's a problem. That is a problem. What what sometimes happens is if a book isn't being sold, you know, within days from an agent, if there's an opportunity to, if we absolutely love something and just think "Ah, the ending is letting it down. And if there is time, we will go back to an agent and say, look, we absolutely love this, but is there any chance they could look at the ending? Because we think if if it just did this, if it had those tweaks, I think I could get it through. But that's all about how quick the agent is taking it through the process.
0: Who are the best agents?
1: <laughs> I can't answer that. Why not? <laughs> because if I say one and uh, not another, there's going to be trouble. Um, I couldn't possibly say I say in terms of what I like in an agent. Um, I, I suppose, oddly, I quite like the old school agents in terms of... I like people who give me a good length of time to read something, and they give me a deadline. And they tell me exactly what they want on that deadline. Whether it's an offer for UK and com, or whether it's for world all, or whether it's, you know, or whether they have a level that they need to come in on. I love rules and deadlines particularly. Whereas it's harder when things go out and then you're told the next day, I've got a first offer and have you got? It? It's like ah, I've got a hundred other submissions. I've not got around to it. I'm not going to get around to it. So. I suppose I prefer that because I, I think it's more fair for the authors and I think it's better for the books in the long run mm-hmm. because if you're basing it on having read it in two hours
0: yeah, it doesn't then do justice.
1: the mm-hmm. people who are pitching it we're, pitch, we're pitching a book having based really you know, very little on um, what we're talking about and what we're, how we are promoting it internally and I just think it's but well, personally I think it's not good for the authors to do that in the long run so I prefer agents who take a bit more time, even if they think it's going to sell it for a high amount mm-hmm. and have a lot of interest, I prefer if they um, give us a bit more time. That's a plea.
0: <laughs> and who gives you the most time?
1: <laughs> I'm not going to give names. I'm not going to give names. Every editor, you know, we, we all naturally gravitate towards certain people who we connect particularly well with and we have similar tastes to so let's sure. let's leave it at that. Let's do that.
0: <laughs> and then a kind of a catch-all, which I'm, I'm still going to go through the list though, but uh, can these various faults be put right? I guess you, you sort of, uh, you read the, the text and you're, you're thinking, is this fixable or not fixable?
1: Mm.
0: Is that what goes through your head?
1: Yeah, and I think it's also about what you're looking for at the time. So if I know, for example, I've already bought as much, as much fiction as I'm going to get for next year. I don't want to buy any more fiction. I just want non-fiction. So if I get in a fiction book and there's lots of problems with it, I'm just not going to have the time or, or energy to think about it. But yeah. if I know that actually I really want to buy one book and I know it wants to be... I want it to be in this sort of area. Um, and if something comes in and I actually I love the writing, it's great. It's got quite a lot of work that needs to be done, but it's exactly what I'm looking for. And with that work, it will be great. Then it's worth it. So there's a lot of factors that do feed into those decisions.
0: Can the author be persuaded to let them be put right?
1: <laughs> uh, usually, I think, usually. Um, there's obviously a difference between... You get all sorts of writers. You have writers I've worked... Particularly because I've worked in non-fiction mostly. You mm-hmm. get a lot of writers who, who aren't writers by trade. You get people who are a lot of first-time writers who understandably don't know what the process is and so they might have concerns, are you trying to railroad them? So I think generally as long as you're clear as the reasons why you're doing what you're doing or why you're suggesting what you're suggesting.
0: What do you mean by railroad?
1: Just kind of pushing them, making them steamrollering. Okay. Trying to push them onto a course that they don't want to go onto. Okay. As long as there's a reason and it's ultimately is for the good of the book then I think people tend to come around.
0: Can the author be trusted to put them right himself, or must the manuscript be revised by an expert, or must it, and at this point the publisher groans <laughs> aloud, be taken home for re- revision by the publisher's own hand? Well, we don't have to worry about that, but...
1: It's usually a conversation between the editor and the author. In my experience, I don't think I've ever had to get an expert to do that. I think... When you read the manuscript on submission or the proposal, you if you think that actually it needs an expert's work, then generally the book should have been written by an expert in the first place. Okay. So maybe that's that's your answer.
0: Um, will people buy it?
1: Ah, that's the, that's the question. And the sort of the brilliant and heartbreaking thing about working in publishing. Mm-hmm. Books that are absolutely brilliant and... Maybe, maybe in one year, in one month, could have sold brilliantly well. For whatever reason, another day, another month, people just aren't connecting with it for whatever reason. Um, Or something that you just think, why on earth is that selling? And it sells incredible amounts. So, you know, it's, we do, it's not just plucking numbers out of the air. We do have to base it on fairly rational logic. But yeah, I mean, who knows? We hope they will. We hope and believe that they will.
0: Do you think that most great works see the light of day?
1: That's an interesting question. I would say they probably see the light of day, but the light of day, yes, but not necessarily that many readers' eyes, perhaps.
0: hmm But great works will get published eventually, you think?
1: I don't think that's necessarily true, no. Yeah, I find it a bit frustrating when people say, if it's good enough it will be published. I don't think that's entirely true. I would hope that for the most part it's true, Yeah. but inevitably some writers have more opportunities to be put in front of a publisher than others do. Um, Some may have absolutely none at all. So yeah, I would say no, they don't all get to, certainly don't get to our eyes or to the reader's eyes necessarily.
0: There was that there was that first rate book by X rather like this one a first rate book but a terrible flop will this be a similar flop? can anything be done to prevent it from being a flop
1: <laughs> um, I feel like I'm back in that this is our acquisitions meetings every week <laughs> <laughs> mm. oh God um That that's something that we have to deal with. Again, I think a lot of it, um, our publishing director, Francis Bickmore, he always says, um, will it make us happy or will it make us rich? And I think if we've got enough that will make us rich and this book will make us happy, even if we think it might not sell that much, maybe it will flop, but it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant and we believe in it. Then I say go for it. That's pretty idealistic. It is, it is. It is. But
0: you're allowed to be idealistic here? I think
1: editors should be idealistic.
0: No, but does the company allow you to be idealistic?
1: Uh, more than...
0: More than most? More than most. Yeah. Definitely,
1: yeah. Definitely. I mean, of course, you know, there are, I, we all have our dream books crushed, uh, you know, in, on those, in those acquisitions meetings and whole grudges about it ever since. But, you know, but that, we do have to be realistic as well. But I think we have to start from a place of being the idealists and the ones who are, the, you know, ones who are thinking that a book is amazing and it will sell incredibly well and then we have to be brought down to reality.
0: What book are you most proud of having uh, published?
1: That's a, I always find that a difficult question because I've, I've worked on a lot of popular culture books over the years and I would say I've probably done a lot of frivolous books if you like mm-hmm. um, but, so but, I don't tend to do worthy books but best-selling not all, no, no. I think that's sort of alternative I suppose alternative tastes um, in terms of ones I'm most proud of before being here I think one book that I, I do I sort of have a sort of little moments of you know pride and joy when I see it is by a guy called Tom Jones not the Welsh singer Tom Jones mm-hmm. um, and he had a blog um, called Tide of London Tide of Life
0: Is that Samuel um, Johnson? That yeah, is, yeah exactly yeah. yeah
1: and I remember really loving the blog and we did a book and it was actually inspired by a book and I'm going to get this wrong now but I think it was a book that Chronicle did and I think it was called The New York Notebook or The New York I think it's New York Notebook, and it was great places and things to do, great but great places to go and things to do in New York. But it had these incredible illustrations. Um, so it'd be talking about a particular bar and it'd have an illustration, and it would say, you know, you walk in and so-and-so will be playing the piano as you walk in. So it it was like a you know, things to do in New York, but it was just so evocative and so immediate and creative. And so when I saw this blog, I thought, we've got to do that with this. And then we found this great artist. I can't remember if that was through Tom or how we how we came to find... Uh, it's Hannah Warren and a designer Good. called Lottie Crumble Home. I'm remembering them. Um, and, yeah, just produced this book. And it's just gone on to just sell and sell and sell. And that was one where... No, it wasn't a bestseller. It wasn't one that was huge in its first week. But mm-hmm. it's... I... I should I'm ashamed to say I don't know what the um, exact sales figures are now, but it just sells and sells and sells. And I love going in. That was I think that was 2011.
0: Is it like a graphic novel or not? that is is it illustration? No, it's or? an
1: illustrated book, but it's not a graphic novel, okay. it's just a book of um, a year of things to do mm-hmm. in London. And in mm-hmm. fact, if you go to Waterstones in Notting Hill, they tend to have it there nicely displayed. So, so that was definitely one. But then I suppose as I got older, I'm probably more. Um, and as the world's sort of slightly falling apart around our is I am proud of working with women like Gina Miller um, on her book Rise. Uh, for those who don't know who she is, she took the UK government to court when they tried to force through Article 50, which would have hastened our exit out of the European Union. Um, and also publishing... she th- win? Yeah, she okay. did indeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, What'd she get? Well, it, they had to take it through well they had to take it in front of parliament so they were trying to government were trying to push it through without actually taking it to a parliamentary vote so they had to take it to a parliamentary vote sadly we are still (laughs) exiting the european union Mm -hmm. in a painful painful manner but she continues to to fight the good fight and also publishing the uk edition of um, when They Call You a Terrorist, which is by the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, Patrice kahn with Asha Bandele, who's a brilliant writer, and the two of them have just produced the most stunning book. And Patrice's life is phenomenal. I think bringing, bringing people who have just had the most astonishing lives and have done so much with... you know, I think it's, you don't see that many people who use their lives purely... Pretty much purely for the good of others. I think when they, people dedicate their lives to doing that, I think they deserve to have their, their stories shouted from the rooftops, really. So I'm very proud of that as well. I mean, I'm proud of all of them. Of course I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, those are the ones that jump out immediately. Apologies to all the authors who are now going to feel <laughs> annoyed <laughs> that I've not mentioned them. Well, we can't do you Love that. you all the, you know, yeah. equally.
0: Uh, is there anything else that uh, that we haven't covered that you think should be covered about your role as a commissioning editor?
1: In terms of the actual processes, mm. I mean, well, you then also you've you've had the say we've gone through an acquisitions meeting and mm. everybody loves it or half of the people love it and it can then get signed off. With, to go to a numbers meeting. So then you have to run the numbers. You have to put in, how many do UK think that they can sell? How many, if you, can offer for, if you can offer for world rights, how many do our rights team think they can sell? How much money do they think we can sell rights for? Could we get money for the audiobook? And that all goes into a PNL form, and then that spits out a number. <laughs> that will spit out a number that we think we can make this amount, and we think we can offer this level of advance and not lose money. And then that might be that it spits as a number where it's minus money and you can't. And you're just simply, however much we love it, we just actually cannot make it work. So that, it's, that isn't the end process. It's not like, we all love it. Yay, let's buy it. Great. Mm-hmm. It's not that. It's then a case of weighing up. How far can we push this? How much do we want? Well, it's not just how much do we want it. We might absolutely desperately want it, but we just simply can't afford it. So there is that stage as well.
0: Hmm. Okay. And uh, when you come up with an advance, I mean, on the surface, it's like all it is is an advance, but it's not actually, uh, I don't think, I think you should change the name of this advance because it's not really an advance. If they don't earn the money back, they get to keep the rest of that advance. So it's not really an advance.
1: Oh, well, it's an advance against royalties. So, no, I yeah, know, but if yeah, they don't I mean, that's, earn, that's, if the book doesn't so. earn
0: the royalties, then they get to keep the advance, as I, as I understand it. I
1: suppose the, I don't know, maybe maybe that's because if somebody fails to deliver, they have to return that advance. They so don't have just, to though. Well, in theory. It
0: depends. <laughs> I guess it depends on the publisher. In theory, yeah. in a
1: con- Contractually, usually there'll be something that says failure to deliver means that you have to return the money now. It might be, again, that you feel like it's just, for whatever reason, maybe somebody had dedicated five years of their life to it and, you know, whatever. Or maybe there's a legal issue there as well. Maybe that you feel like you just, it's not worth trying to extract that money back. But I think by and large, contractually speaking, that you should be able to get that advance back.
0: Mm. I'm getting conflicting uh, reports here. Not from that's, you. No. From, that's one... you give given me one <laughs> mm. scenario, but I've heard others that basically an advance is not, is not uh, really an advance in that uh, they get to keep it all. But...
1: Okay. I, well, the only, the only scenario I would think of where they wouldn't keep it all is if they just simply didn't deliver and you couldn't publish the book. Right. In which case... Well, well you, if you publish the book and contract. they get bombs... Oh, yeah, of course, and that's their money to keep, yeah. Sorry. So if we if we the book, if they have delivered the book, if they have yes, actually delivered the manuscript, they delivered it, and we have published it. And it just didn't it sell owns. very much. Then absolutely, they keep their advance. That's what I'm, that I'm saying. It's yeah. really
0: not against royalties because if it doesn't sell, then they get to keep the money anyway.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. That in that particular instance, no. But I suppose the way you could look at it is, well, we would have the opportunity to try it in a different format. Could we sell it at high discount, you know, at a a remainder to somebody and get more money out of it that way? So we still have the right to use the content to try to get some money out of it. I suppose that's how I would see that working. I
0: see. Okay. Finally, maybe you could just pitch one book to potential readers.
1: Oh, God. That's what,
0: what do you think, like what, what you're working on now or what's just come out that you really, really think that people should, it'll change their life?
1: Can I do two? <laughs> you yeah. can say no. Um, <laughs> how about if I do it just on, literally, on the most recent book that I've bought? Because I don't want to say about one being. Better than another, yep. because again, I'll have authors up in arms about it. Okay. Um, but the most recent one i bought is an illustrated book, and that's sort of going back to my heartland, I guess, from, from my career prior to Carnegie. And it's called I Go Quiet, and it's by uh, a guy called David Wieme, who David. Weime. How do you spell that? Think French. O- oh, U-I- French. Oh, okay. M-E- good, good. Yeah. T, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, who actually works in publishing in America but he's an illustrator. He's illustrated children's books in the States and he's a street artist. We were introduced by our head of sales here and he said you've got to just check out David's artwork. It's just phenomenal and so he introduced us and he said he's got a book in the works. You've got to see it. got to see it when it's ready and when it came through I instantly just fell in love with it. So it's called I Go Quiet and it's about a girl who is overwhelmed by the, the noise and, I suppose, the chatter of the world. So she, and she feels, she's shy, I suppose, she's an introvert. And being in a world where the loudest voice is the one that gets heard, she feels she doesn't have a place. So whenever she's meant to speak up, she goes quiet she's in this the, the artwork is just phenomenal and you really do have to look at the artwork for this to, to I was going to say what it's makes it phenomenal but I mean the detail yeah if, you, if you're a fan of Sean Tan's work he wrote a book called The Arrival uh, it's absolutely beautiful or if you know uh, the melancholy Death of Oyster Boy which Tim Burton did as well similar sort of feel to it slightly gothic I suppose but the detail of the artwork is stunning but as well I think it's just in a time where there's so much anxiety and we are talking a bit more about mental health problems. I think it's a, one that anybody who's ever had insecurities or who's ever just gone into themselves, whether that's because of anxiety or any other mental health problem, you will relate to it because she essentially she does just fold in on herself. But through creativity, through reading books, through singing, she realises that she does have a place in the world. It's, actually, it's mainly about the power of books to show us all that we have a place in the world. And at the end of the book, she says, "We know what? I, I go quiet now, but in the future, my voice will be heard, essentially. That's me paraphrasing. Um, and Is this think, a young adult book? Or? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think for us, we, again, if you know Sean Town's work, it's something where you would buy it as an adult. But it is particularly, I think, resonant with young adults. Mm-hmm. But it's not a young adult book. That We're not, we're not selling it as a young adult book. Um, it's just a very, very beautiful book that, yeah, I think anybody, particularly in these rather trying and testing times, will relate to um, whatever your gender or, you know, wherever you're from. Um, I think there's something for everybody to relate to.
0: God, it's a perfect book to uh, promote on the bibliophile. Yeah. Thanks yeah. so much for your time and for your illuminating comments.
1: Oh, thank you for having me on. Obviously, it's, it is one, one editor's thoughts, so um, I'm sure plenty would disagree with me, but hopefully it's useful.
0: I've been speaking to Hannah Knowles, who is the Senior Commissioning Editor at Canongate Books. Thanks again. Thank you.